0: Welcome to Manifesto, a plague cast. <laughs> no, that's it. No, no, no. Sound like this? <it. Stop laughs> Sound like this? <it. Stop laughs> Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host, Phil Clyde, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our special guest, Matt Gallagher, author of the forthcoming novel, Empire City, coming out April 28th. And me, the knocker off of Tall Hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Gallander, how are you? Glad
1: to have you here. Let's get into it. Great. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to uh, chatting with you and and catching up uh, on
2: days gone by. Yeah, we should note, uh, we've known Matt a long time, uh, put together an anthology of that fiction, Fire and Forget, uh, together um and yeah thrilled to have him in advance of his forthcoming novel empire city which is insane and wonderful and really fun to read and uh it's a sort of alternate history of america takes place in a sort of cracked distorted present where uh the concept of the novel is that america had won uh the vietnam war and that uh in a way, and that led to a series of sort of, um, let's just say the future does not actually look brighter as a result. Um, And uh, a lot of the sort of political divisions that you see in America take on this sort of weird alternate reality, um, but sort of very sort of, there's a kind of funhouse mirror recognition that you can see uh, when you're reading the novel. And it's just really awesome, really smart, really interesting uh, the way that it plays out. And uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's 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 Matt, but we're not going to be discussing Empire City today. Um, and wait, by the way, when does that, that book come out, Matt?
1: Uh, April 28th. And that was a really uh, generous plug. Thanks, man. I might have to take you on the road with me. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, we are here to discuss uh, Gustav Hasford's uh, essay in Penthouse Magazine, Um Vietnam means never having to say you're sorry. Published in Penthouse, June 1987, uh, a publication for which, which Matt Gallagher reads for the articles.
0: <laughs> oh, but wait, Matt, you wrote for Penthouse.
1: I still do. I have, uh, I have a national security column there called Embrace the Suck. You write for Penthouse. I do, I do. Um, and so you are Hasford. You are the Hasford of our generation. I, uh, in some ways, I, I welcome the comparison because I think he's a brilliant author uh, who, uh, you whose know, book, uh, The Short Timers, uh, was the basis for the movie Full Metal Jacket and is uh, well, well worthy of being called the Vietnam War classic. Uh, on the other hand, given how Hasford's life played out post Full Metal Jacket, I, uh, I reject uh, that comparison wholeheartedly uh, this is i i refuse to accept this characterization before we
0: get into um, <laughs> this absolutely insane and inspired and deranged review aphoristic collection on on the movie Rambo let me just point out that if you go to hasford's wikipedia page right now you will find that it's broken into a number of sections as all wikipedia pages are and that the single longest section in the hasford wikipedia entry it's not early life it's not early literary career it's not first novel in film which refers to the novel that full metal jacket was based on no no, no. the longest section in Hasford's Wikipedia, is for library books theft charges, (laughs) which refers to the hundreds of books. No, I'm sorry, not hundreds. Wait, let
2: me just read this. Then in 1988,
0: I'm I'm quoting now, then in 1988, shortly before the Oscars ceremony, he was charged with theft. After campus police from California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California, found nearly 10,000 library books in his rented storage locker. At that time, he had 87 overdue books and five years of Civil War Times magazine issues checked out. By the way, you know, Charles Portis just died. Hasford was a Portis character. I mean, he gets arrested for having, he's a, a veteran who gets arrested for having stolen library books that he's using to research the Civil War. He yeah. is literally a Portis <laughs> character.
1: We just haven't found the manuscript yet. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, if I recall correctly, that became national news uh, in the weeks leading up to the Academy Award ceremony in 88 because Full Metal Jacket was a, had been named a finalist or whatever. So it was kind of a, a a bit like a legit beyond the literary world scandal um and then a few years later after that he died uh kind of penniless uh on some remote greek island um kind of drank and drank
2: himself to death well he had uh he would once said uh in an interview that uh I don't think I ought to make too much money I just sit around all of, all the time reading my civil war books
1: so <laughs> you
2: know Unbelievable, man! Yeah,
1: yeah. he was—he was—he uh, was the real deal. He was not—he was not a poser.
0: <laughs> this is an
1: extraordinary.
0: Uh, he also lived with Harlan Ellison for a while. I found out. Oh uh, no! Kidding. Really? Yeah, and I guess he was writing like, um, you know, sci-fi paperbacks, and uh, somehow he and Harlan Ellison fell in
1: together. Man, w- what a guy! But um, this essay, Matt, tell us a little bit about. It. Sure. So, uh, uh, Vietnam means never having to say you're sorry. Uh, came out in June '87, which was the same month that Full Metal Jacket uh, debuted. So, uh, this is uh, uh, Hasford. Kind of famously had a lot of disputes with uh, Stanley Kubrick and, and Michael Hare uh, on the screenplay of uh, of Full Metal Jacket. Um, they eventually gave him screen screenwriter uh, co screenwriter uh, 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 credit. Uh, but yeah, the yeah, he was they were they were forced to um, cuz he he uh uh really kind of uh tried to out essentially outlawed them and just wouldn't go away. Uh so, you know, in in some ways you know I kind of read this this screed against uh uh Rambo 2 and the sense uh, kind of the cartoon sensationalizing of the Vietnam veteran uh, in American film at that point. Uh, uh you know, the, you can read it literally as as kind of him taking down uh, a film that he disagreed with and um uh, uh, the way American society has kind of sanitized and ingested uh, uh, the american uh, the modern american veteran the, uh, the, both the both the crazy one uh, crazy deranged one and, and also kind of the homeless broken one uh, but you know in context of, of when he wrote this, I, I think uh, uh, you know I felt kind of a, a, a beneath the layer level of of him reconciling with a film that. Uh, he knew he'd be remembered for, but you know, wasn't totally his uh, uh, creative vision, right? He uh, uh, it, it it changed from the short timers in some ways, and you know, I, I know I've uh, talked with you both about this before. Uh, you know, Kubrick imagined Full Metal Jacket as being this great anti-war film, and it is. Uh, on the other hand, uh, how many Marines have joined uh, because of it? Uh, thousands, of, thousands
2: upon thousands. Of it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, one of the best recruiting tools, those drill, drill instructor scenes, you know, that the Marine Corps ever didn't make.
1: Right, so you know, this, 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 his film uh, about his work, about his, his life, about his, his war experience, ultimately kind of ends up doing the same thing that he's raging against in this essay, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, war being sanitized for, for the masses to consume, for entertainment.
2: Uh, what is, you know, there's this beautiful should, should we just start with the first paragraph? I feel like it, it sets it up really well. Um, and by the way, you can find this essay online pretty easily. Just type in Gustav Hasford, Vietnam <laughs> it means never having to say you're sorry. It's quite a title. This is how it begins. The difference between a fairy tale and a sea story is that a fairy tale begins with once upon a time and a sea story begins with this is no shit. Listen up, people. This is no shit. History may be written with blood and iron, but it is printed with ink and it is made real and dangerous when it is put on film, the alternate literature of our times. <clears throat> and uh, uh, That's <laughs> a good
0: indication of the style. It's like um, crisp and punchy and ironic and aphoristic, sort of mm-hmm. like uh, colloquially <laughs> aphoristic, but... Um, A very
1: ironic, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what what struck me about the essay is is the open hostility it displays towards uh, Americans, right? Towards American American civilians, it's it's us against them. And he's not talking about uh, the Viet Cong; he's talking about civilians and veterans, right? There's this line, really, kind of in the heart of the essay. Civilians will never understand that the Vietnam veterans have been tortured. It was not by the Viet-, Viet Cong, but by the wives who still don't know we were there. The parents who demanded that we not express our pain. The sisters who were afraid to let us hold their babies. And the girlfriends who believed that if they made us angry, we would kill them. Because that's what the Vietnam veterans on television would, television would do in the movies of the week. that have been manufactured like cheese to accommodate the most irrational prejudices of a civilian audience. Uh, uh, there's just kind of a naked rage here that uh, mm-hmm. I, find, you know, I find really refreshing. Who are you?
2: Your worst nightmare. Uh, you
1: know, usually, this is—it's count. You know, uh, uh, our generation of vets, like we, we don't talk like this. We're not, and if somebody did, uh, it would be—it would be a real shock to the system because uh, uh, you're you're supposed to couch this stuff, right? We've been we've been kind of conditioned to. To count, and you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of differences between Hasford's generation and ours. But are you? Uh, I mean,
0: I f- I don't see that. that actually. I I feel like that stuff. As I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, this is all very familiar to me. Like this, I was thinking, this is where the this sort of mode of bitterness towards civilians started. Like this is it in its original unadulterated form, and so it maybe in that sense, it's not couched in the same way it is in our generation, but I feel like I've heard everything he's saying in some form or another, like, you know, there's the, but yeah, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's adulterated in a way, but it felt very familiar to me in the sense that, you know, I don't think um, in this, it wasn't there in this form uh, with Korean War Vets, or World War II vets, or um, for that matter, Spanish American War vets, or, or Civil War vets. I mean, this sense of, the sense—the sense of estrangement was there upon the return home, but not the hostility or
1: the the bitterness. I, I'd say some Spanish Civil War veterans. Uh, yeah. have, uh you know that's a that's a unique situation, mm-hmm. obviously, but um, that, some of, that shows up in some of their their memoirs and interesting,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean, and just the, the, the tone of it, like, so he, he brings up this idea of reviling the veteran. You know, the smart money in art has always been on reviling the veteran, right? Um, including in the films that, that sort of act like they're doing him justice. And he writes, the motivations that have made reviling the veteran a civilian hobby are complex. My theory is that civilians are jealous of Vietnam veterans because we can skillfully shoot up heroin, barricade the door, and adjust the scope on a sniper's, sniper's rifle all at the same time. No easy feat, as we all know. And then later he goes, Are we plain fucking crazy? Did we in some black jungle lose our grip on the burned edge of reality? Make no mistake, the civilians revel in painting us as crazy, at least in their own movies. Or is it because Vietnam was the education we never got in school? Do they hate us because Vietnam veterans are fierce witnesses to hard facts civilians lack the intestinal fortitude to confront, even secondhand? Truth is stranger than fiction, but has never been as popular. If we can be dismissed as section eights, we can be pitied and patronized, a civilian tactic to resist our expert testimony with a willful ignorance as hard as iron." And the willful ignorance um, that people, (laughs) what they want to resist in Hasford's telling is a couple of fairly sort of simple facts, right? Um, That we lost. Um, we weren't Rambo betrayed by CIA, CIA spooks. It was a fair fight and we lost. That's some cold shit, man, but there it is. And his read of Rambo, First Blood, Part Two, which he calls the triumph of the will for American, <clears throat> I'll just, should just read this whole paragraph. This is great. Rambo, First Blood, Part Two, the triumph of the will for American Nazis is proof of the Marine Corps proverb that there is always some asshole who does not get the word. Even at this late date, Rambo argues that despite appearances and despite the facts, the Vietnam War was a righteous cause. Rambo satisfies our pathetic need to win the war and give us another coat of whitewash as bumbling do-gooders, innocent American white-bred boys pulled down into corruption by wicked Orientals. We should have won and we could have won, Rambo argues, if only the dumb grunts could have been saved by grotesquely muscled civilians who somehow skated the shooting war. Were the same age, sly all of whom seem to be Green Beret Medal of Honor winners packing James Bond hardware.
0: Wait, read it. Because that parenthetical, were the same age sly, like, in context, is great. You know, yeah. it's like a real cutting. Uh, he doesn't make too much of it. He doesn't try and, you know, it's, it's delivered in this... Um, sneaky but very effective way just as this little parenthetical we're the same age where were you men yeah very good stuff
2: and it's you know he he gets this sort of odd place where he's not trying to apologize for having been in the war he's not trying to say it was a good war right Um,
0: he's definitely (laughs) saying I will not apologize for it yeah, That's he says that directly. Good right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, talking about his you know body count, I killed as many of them as they did of me. Uh, I hope I hit nothing but trees <laughs> and I hope the trees lived. If I did kill a human being in Vietnam, it was a tragic accident or self-defense. I regret it, but I do not apologize, right? Um, but also uh, sort of not being, not willing to be apologetic, not wanting to sort of fit into this Um, wounded veteran, PTSD veteran stereotype, right? Uh, Though also frustrated about the civilians who won't let him voice his pain. Um, And, um, but also acknowledging that the war was a disaster, right? Um, And that the sort of honest testimony of people coming back from the war is... Is what we're creating art to avoid,
1: right? And I, what, what, uh, what struck me about this uh, to kind of maybe circle back to, to something we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, there's no throat clearing, there's no exploration of why he joined, right? Because he, he volunteered uh, in '66, he was a combat correspondent. Uh, uh, you know, a, a modern version of this essay, uh, whatever its range is going to be uh, on on um you know acceptance of how of how the war played out versus apologizing for out, there's gonna be the throat clearing of, of how or why you joined, right? Now this jumps jumps right into it. Uh uh and it's um you know it's kind of building towards uh trying to change something, right? Uh there at the near the end where it says it's not enough to touch the names on the black wall and remember our finest tribute to our fallen dead would be to convince their sons that we were not Rambo and neither are they. Uh oh. is I mean it's it's uh, it's a beautiful line and it 's just uh, uh you know terrifying to realize that we uh, uh history would would go on to um prove him sadly correct uh, but uh, th- th- that well, 's kind, of, kind of what struck me as, as maybe different than than uh, something you 'd read in two thousand and twenty yeah
0: that 's a very very good point and i i hadn 't i guess part of what I was saying about like the style with that sort of ironic aphoristic um, punchy, very fluid style is like th- that's right. Like it's there's no throat clearing, there's no setup. It's like you you're immersed in the voice from the very beginning. Writing definitive he's writing from a definitive position of uh like character voice, like not there's no self justification. There's no kind of contextualizing in the sense of let me lead you into um, what the issues at play here are. It's, there's none of that at all. It's um, yeah, I see that actually it makes me realize what you were talking about earlier, Matt, when you were saying um, you wouldn't get that from somebody in our generation. If they wrote it, there would have been a, a kind of social, Context provided that he's not interested in doing it.
2: Well, one of the interesting things about our generation is, I mean, you had this in in his too, to a certain extent, but the most prominent people playing Rambo today are not guys like Sly who skated the shooting war, right? It's guys like sort of Rob O'Neill or, um, in a more sinister register that, um, uh, What's the the war criminal's name? Um, Eddie Gallagher, not my Eddie cousin. Gall- yeah, close close relative of yours. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, di- very distant.
2: Right, you know, sort of guys who, um, you know, the interesting thing about a guy like Gallagher or some of the other guys who got pardoned was, you know, this is a guy who the other SEALs in his unit turned on, right? And SEALs, you know, anybody who served overseas, you know SEALs have a kind of bad reputation for brutality in the first place. Uh, and a kind of clannishness. So the fact that like his whole unit turned him in, I think everybody sees is incredibly telling, right? Um, and then in his kind of like post in rehabilitation stage, he's, he seems to be playing into a character that feels bred um, by these cultural tropes that Hasford is commenting on now, that Hasford's reads as uh, kind of created um, you know by civilians as a way to avoid the reality of war but you know currently those roles are being acted by guys who you know have the background you know, have real background in combat
1: yeah. they do uh but they, they, and they have a very specific uh keyhole into it right uh uh these spec op guys who you know are obviously the best at what they do um uh you know, spend entire careers uh, in these post-9-11 wars doing night raids, right? Uh, every Iraqi or, or, or Afghan or uh, Syrian they encounter uh, is, uh, may well be shooting at them. Uh, compare that to the experience of your, your average grunt or your, your everyday Marine, uh, wildly different, uh, particularly if they're conducting uh, uh, coin operations or, you know, whatever the new buzzword for, for this, essentially the same thing is these days. Uh, and th- th- there's a real danger in that because that, uh, it, to, to, uh, as Hasford's kind of talking about um, uh, sanitizing uh, modern war for, for public consumption, for recreational gore, as he puts it, uh, you know, that's, there's, there's a reason American Sniper has really been the only big movie uh, of our era to, to, to make real money. Uh, and that's, that's what it did, right? It, 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 uh, it, it created sanitized recreational gore for the masses uh, from mm-hmm. the perspective of, of uh, a Navy SEAL. Who uh, uh don't get me wrong, I'm glad Chris Kyle uh was on our side uh and providing Overwatch uh uh for us when uh, or, uh, uh for us when we were over there. But uh uh he you know he doesn't have any kind of keen wisdom into the into the wider war as a whole. Uh I- if anything, he saw he saw less of it than, than uh my my E4s did every day and every night uh in, in a, a sectarian town north of Baghdad.
0: Yeah, yeah, but but this is this is interesting in the sense that like uh, Matt you wrote a very good piece in the New York Times a few years ago about uh the sort of uh kind of cultural valorization of special ops guys what was that it was a Times piece right it was yeah uh, yeah
1: uh, Welcome to the Age of the Commando. Welcome yeah. to the Age of the
0: Commando right I remember that it was an excellent piece I actually quoted that and quoted something from that piece and something I wrote and um I, so, on the one hand, you have this tiny class of people who are unrepresentative of the war, who become the Hollywood icons because they're unrepresentative of the war and therefore right. lend themselves to the sort of
2: iconic portrayals, right? Portrayals, right? And, and something and about because, that... because the types of missions that they did provide exactly the kind of narrative arc that the war itself lacked, right? So, if you were right. doing what, you know, Matt was doing... Um, or maybe some of what you were doing Jake like you're you're trying to stabilize an article and Jake has a good piece coming about state <laughs> stability as a goal but you're working with like you're meeting with locals um, you're tr- kind of making essentially political decisions uh, in an uncertain environment where you fundamentally do not understand the underlying dynamics and the hopes that sort of There's greater stability and reconciliation and sort of governance and, uh, going forward, um, which is sort of difficult to play out in the moment, uh, and kind of gets revealed itself over the course of history as to whether or not you're actually doing something good. And then the contrast to that, right, um, is there's a bad guy somewhere. We're going to go in a helicopter. We're going to fast rope down. We're going to kill him and then go home. And that's like, got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It is so satisfying, especially in wars that don't end. Um, And so, yeah, from a narrative, just from a basic narrative perspective, like, you know, that's easier to film because it has a beginning, middle, middle, and end. But it also sort of serves like some craving that we have um, to feel like there's a clear, just goal that we can achieve and then feel good about once it has been achieved. And it's interesting to talk to like guys who served in special operations, the sort of noted like guys versus guys who did the kind of working with folks doing coin stuff. You know, a lot of those guys, special ops guys tend to feel a lot better sure. about their deployments because it was like, well, yeah, like we, we got a lot of bad guys. Why would I not feel bad about that? Right? Um, it's like, well, yeah, over the, lo- yeah, the long term, did you make things better? Um, or did you just do a lot of violence in a foreign land that you didn't understand? Um, Forget about even better. Like, did you did
0: you win the war? You know what <laughs> I mean, right? I, I don't even uh, leaving aside the question of the kind of um, benefits of it in terms of the impact it had on the society. Like, you killed all these HVTs, like you killed all these high value targets, like the higher level terrorist guys. But did that what what was the strategic goal? that that accomplished that won the war and i think that the thing that makes this a bit more complicated though everything you're saying phil is right is that there is this hollywood dimension that precedes the war itself that the war then reflects back in the sense that you know, there is, Hasford has this great quote from uh, Joseph Heller, the author of Catch-22. And he um, has a lot of quotes in this piece. It's like another part of the style There's this sort of like...
1: We had all those stolen feature. library books. You better put them in the juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But you know, but it's like, that's the sort of... Like he's not... So actually, that's part of it, right? He's not trying to construct a neat narrative. Mm-hmm. He has all these lines and voices in his head, in his head and he's just like spitting out these bits of accumulated wisdom that are supposed to in their kind of uh, concordance add up to something, but he's, it's not an, it's not a straight line. And the reason it's not a straight line is, is it strikes me, Matt, you know, him a lot better as a writer than I do, but it doesn't seem to me that he's going for some sort of deconstructed narrative effect in the sense of like a postmodern writer. It's that it's this very sort of, guy in conversation with himself like trying out his own voice sort of ranting but he's really smart and he's read a lot so when he rants like he's quoting Joseph Heller then he's quoting yep. Kubrick then he's quoting you know I can't even remember all the other ones so there's it, a
2: reference to dispatches yeah right? to
0: Michael Hare's dispatches that you know he's sort of throwing all these things out and they're not even showy they're just they're the points of reference that he has in his head but let me read the uh The Joseph Heller quote, Heller says, I actually hoped I would get into combat. I was just 19 and there were a great many movies being made about the war. It all seemed so dramatic and heroic. I remember my mother weeping as the trolley car pulled away with me on it. I couldn't figure out why she was so unhappy. I felt like I was going to Hollywood, you know, and there there are two points there. The first is, you know, that we sometimes like express this sort of shock these days that young men would want to go to war. I don't think we would not include the three of us necessarily, but there's a a conditioned cultural attitude that this is supposed to be a revelation that young men would enjoy the prospect of war. But I think that that's, there's nothing particularly surprising about that uh, or new. And then this idea, like, I felt like I was going you to know, Hollywood. Like he felt yeah. like he was going to, participate in the film that he would that he had seen and uh you know without turning into baudrillard here or, or anything there's a some degree of kind of feedback loop between the representations that we create of war and then the wars that we create out of those representations
2: um i don't know yeah. exactly what that you know is. like I mean, Mailer going to World War II and going to the Pacific, he was pissed off um, because, you know, that was his number two war. It was definitely not his number one war. Right. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> it was not the, uh, it didn't fit the, the sort of image uh, of where it was at to him. Um, you know, <clears throat> the other thing about the style, you know, I was reading this and I was thinking of something that Robert Stone once said, where he's trying to talk about like how to write about Vietnam and just how to write about modern life, and he wrote, "You just cannot get the effects that Hemingway got by his kind of stoic understatement. It just doesn't ring true anymore. It doesn't have the impact. Nor can you pile horror on horror on horror in a kind of deadpan way because people are desensitized to that. You've got to be able to bring to bear other states of consciousness, even if only because so many people take so many drugs." Um, and I felt like this sort of style, you know. The, This is not definitely not stoic understatement. There's a kind of wild, um, almost Gonzo quality to it. There's a lot of humor. There's just barely restrained rage and a lot of, as you mentioned, erudition. Um, uh, it is, yeah. uh, They blend together well. Yeah. In in this, and they blend
0: together well in part because he allows himself to rant. He doesn't try to provide a as sort of cushioning through throat clearing or social context. Like it's just a rant from beginning to end. I remember the, one of you two showed this to me the first time years ago. Um, and I hadn't looked at it again in a long time, and I've actually never read any other Hasford other than whatever, reading this years ago and then reading it again now. And I just remember thinking, well, this is not like anything else I've read. Yeah.
1: This is different. Um, he has two other novels, uh, The Phantom Bloopers, which is a sequel uh, to Full Metal Jacket, uh, where Joker gets kidnapped by the NBA, and rather than get sent to the Hanoi Hilton, he tells them that he'll fight with them and uh, ki- uh, uh, hunt other Americans. Um, it's- so wait, is it a sequel to Full Metal Jacket? Oh, it- I'm sorry. It's a sequel to Short The Short Timers. I okay. misspoke. I misspoke. It's a sequel to The Short Timers. Um, and then he had a, like a third novel. Uh, it was some like detective noir thing that I've never even seen. Uh, that apparently is just terrible. Um, so uh, I think
0: I read in on Fantastic Fiction, which is the uh, you know the sci-fi site he was working on some kind of <laughs> again the, the thing that's featured most prominently in his bio on Fantastic Fiction which is the <laughs> library book theft but um he associated with various 1970s sci-fi scribes even living with oh okay yeah he just associated with them i guess he didn't write any
1: sci-fi paperbacks uh i a a gypsy
0: good time is the one you're talking that's about. it
1: that, that is okay. the title uh i have a question for you two because this is yeah. something uh, uh that made me think about uh, uh you know our cohort cohort as artists and the the generation to come after us uh, I, I was telling phil a couple of weeks ago um one of my uh, writing students uh is a is a young man he's 25 or 26 uh just got back from syria uh, fighting over in syria and um you know he said respectfully like i don't consider my war the same as uh you know yours the 2007 2008 iraq uh maybe maybe contemporary afghanistan so you know that that's that that, that that's that was. What does the
0: respectfully
1: mean there? I don't even. I'm not sure. I've. i, mean, I that. He's calling. He was calling me. He was worried. He was, uh, I was going to take, take it. Take that. He was calling me old. I think.
0: Ah. Uh, I, did. But, I, mean, I, I I not <laughs> sure.
1: I, I, I definitely, definitely got my uh, uh, my Irish up for that uh, for that one. Right. But uh, uh, just, you know, just, just as writers, write you know, uh, uh, either writing about the war directly or anything, anytime it kind of influences your creative work. Uh, hasford says uh, before patrols we said i think i'm gonna hate this movie today vietnam veterans have not overrun the movie industry but there are sappers in the wire and then he goes on to name oliver stone himself michael Hare, uh, a few others do you all consider yourselves sappers in the wire uh, trying to bring stories of iraq and afghanistan or the global war on terror to uh, to a wider public uh do you, is there that kind of combative nature to it?
2: There's a certain degree of combativeness whenever you write, right? I mean, like if you're, if you're writing into conventional wisdom, put down your pen. Um, so yeah, a little bit of pugnacious. I, I, I think more than like, well, there's some things that I wrote where I was feeling like actual white hot rage while I was writing them. Um, uh, so like I wrote a story called money as a weapon system that's in redeployment, which is probably like the, you know, me trying to be the funniest. Right. Um, and that was the, the, you know, sort of humor of that came right out of research I did in the reconstruction effort that just drove me nuts uh, in terms of just the unbelievable waste. So there's a certain degree of that. I think, there's a couple things, and especially as you get to the end here, where I start to get a little worried uh, with him because there's a sort of valorization of um, the veteran who speaks. You know, it's, it's time to throw off the veteran, Leper's, lepers Bell, the Vietnam veteran. It's not enough to touch the names on the black wall. And remember, our finest tribute to our fallen dead would be to convince their sons that we were not Rambo and neither are they. Okay, great, that's awesome. And then later he says, you know, like, we gotta come out of the closet, join rank, stand tall, lean and mean. We are United States grunts and we've come down here to battle. Stop patronizing us, keep your pity. Do not presume to condemn us for things you know nothing about. Stop telling us who we are. Shut up while we, all, while we sound off. All together now girls, buy the numbers because as the Spanish say, there is only one man who knows and that is the man who fights the bull. And this is, um, you know, sort of that like, all right, I was there. I've done it, shut up, listen to me. But like, you know, he's walking a fairly narrow line that a lot of Vietnam vets didn't walk, uh, even in that day. And as I mentioned, like the kind of, the guys who are playing the most into the Rambo stereotype in the present day are the guys who really have, um, you know, been in the ring, have fought the bull, have seen the bull, right? You know, all those guys that I cr- criticized, you know, a couple minutes ago, they've seen a lot more than I did. Right. And I am feel absolutely comfortable uh, criticizing them. And I feel af- absolutely comfortable seeing a civilian criticize them. I think that, you know, it, there, there's an authority in personal experience. Um, but especially in, you know, a democracy that is fighting a war, you, you, you <laughs> I mean, actually in a, in a, in, in a sort of fractured democracy, people are always looking for like, claims of authority that they can rest on. In um, these days, like lived experience is a big one. And I think anytime you try and leverage your lived experience into a political claim that your fellow citizens, you know, are expected to grapple with. Sure. Um, it is, those fellow citizens have every right to attack you criticize you, not just assume that your lived experience is an authority that you can rest on, but that it needs to be interrogated, the link between whatever it is that somebody's been through and the political claims that they're t- trying to make on top of that because, you know, we're all bullshit artists. Um,
1: I, I, I agree with a lot of that, uh, uh, particularly, you know, and, and, you know, particularly in kind of a, a certain social class and the intellectual class of, that's writing books, that's, you know, writing op-eds. Uh, I, I I think that's very true, but the, the questions that sometimes come up uh, uh, with me when I encounter these issues at least anecdotally is what you know what happens with uh the the type of veteran when that kind of earned experience is all they have right when that, uh, that that's the only place where they they can derive authority um, or, or even confidence from in their day to day life right there's a real there's a real element of class rage uh, that can be part of that there's a real element of feeling left behind that can be part of that that you know they went over and, and served their country. Um, you know, maybe, maybe get a paltry check from the VA every month. Uh, but, uh, you know, the best years of their life really were taken away and, you know, they, for whatever reason, uh, uh, education, uh, personality wise, whatever, uh, they're not in a position to kind of wrestle, uh, uh, with these ideas in kind of this, 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 uh, important, you know, uh, intellectual way. I think like Hasford kind of walks that line. For well, I mean, a little
0: ideally bit. that should be, do we get cut off here?
1: No, no. Uh, I, I, I hear you. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I'm getting an
0: internet connection is unstable message. Um, look, I think ideally what you'd like to have happen is that the veteran for whom the war is their only source of authority. And I don't think that that's um, narrowly class restricted necessarily. I think that that's often a phase that veterans of all different backgrounds pass through hopefully on the way to something else. Maybe, you know, there might be a class element in terms of who is unable to move beyond that phase. But Mm -hmm. what you'd like to see is that that's a kind of currency that ought to be transferable to uh, some sort of reward in civilian life, which it ought to be, you know, on the one hand, I, I feel as Phil does that there is a real, not only a danger, but a, a kind of present tendency towards veterans identifying themselves as an interest group and uh, resting on their veteranness, both as a uh, kind of source of moral authority and as a source of kind of a, uh, you know a political
1: privilege that, uh, mm-hmm. that. Well, but you know that, that goes back to. The- but but that goes back to the bonus army. I mean, uh, yeah. the, the, uh, uh there's there's real historical reasons. I mean army right. but,
0: but the I mean, bonus army was promised something, right? And then was trying to collect on what they had been promised. There sure. was a that was a contractual obligation
1: that had been breached. And you don't th- you don't think met- some modern veterans feel that the social contract promised to them?
0: Absolutely, one hundred percent. But the social contract is not a written contract. I'm saying I think the social contract does owe them something. The problem mm-hmm. is that the things that the social contract owes them are in general disrepair. The social contract owes them is the ability to get jobs where they can support families and the ability to form families inside of a a kind of social ecosystem that supports that and then the ability to find avenues to uh, fraternize with each other and to socialize with each other and and to be part of communities. All the things that are generally broken at the moment. So our ability to deliver, the, the point is that there's not a special class of reward that the veteran is owed, the veteran is owed essentially the same reward, but ought to be given some privilege in his receipt of that reward. You know, like you come back and there's a dance and you meet the girl who you're going to marry at that dance. And then you're given a loan so you could buy a house. You can have a baby with that girl, which is literally how I got here because that's what my grandfather did. Met my grandmother at a dance in the Bronx when he was shipping off to go do basic training before he landed at Normandy. And then when he got back, you know, my father was born in, in a Quonset hut in Queens. That was veterans housing. Then they moved to the projects on the Lower East Side. Uh, and then he got a loan, a VA loan, so that he could buy like, you know, whatever it was, a, a one bedroom house on Long Island.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but all of those things were the same things everybody else wanted. But he was able, you know, he was given a, a degree of honor from his status as a veteran, but they weren't a separate class of reward. Um, look, th- in terms of Matt, your original question, I don't, I go back and forth on how I feel about this. Sometimes when I pull too far away from my sense of uh, like what I owe as a veteran or how that informs my writing, I, um, you know, I, I feel pressures that pull me back towards that. That I'm being selfish in certain creative pursuits. But if I feel too penned in by it, then I, I, I rebel against that too because I think that what we're trying to do is tell the truth, not to be too high minded and pretentious about it. But that's awfully difficult. And uh, and you know I. I don't know. I I don't have a satisfying answer. Like, do I feel like a sapper behind the wire? No, I definitely don't feel like a sapper behind the wire in the sense that, you know, and in the way that Hasford's using it, the sapper, he's suggesting that there's a degree of subversion there, like they've breached. I don't feel like I've breached anything, you know, and in fact, the jobs that got me into writing initially, you know, journalism were set up for veterans. Right. So how can I be a sapper if I I was taking these jobs that were set up for veterans? On the other hand, what I did with those jobs was not uh, not necessarily what the people who had hired me were looking for, you know? Um, and, And there was some degree in subversiveness in, uh, or, or I don't know how you'd put it—sabotage um,
1: in in how I wrote about these things. But I, have, just... I've, I've, I have no problem picturing that that aspect of it whatsoever.
0: Yeah. One more thing about um, what what Phil brought up a moment ago in terms of, you know, the but, part that you were uncomfortable with with the sort of turn that Hasford takes towards the authority. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- this is a not a piece that I would take as a like a coherent or uh, estimable <laughs> like a social po- it's a rant it's an angry funny rant and it's full of contradictions and there are plenty of other points in that essay that you could point to that very much undermine that point but part of what I like about it is that it's not um it's not overly self-congratulatory, but it's not overly self-lacerating either, right? Like he's hes not going to sit here and like grovel and ask for forgiveness. He's not ashamed of the fact that he's a veteran. And, you know, sometimes when we, um, I, I think this has probably happened with all of us, but sometimes in the course of criticizing the war or even criticizing, you know, the kind of drift towards militarism and, and uh, imperial foreign policy in America, um, I get these people who expect me to um, renounce my service in some symbolic way, even if it's not in like a narrowly political way. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand, you know? Right. I'm not ashamed of this at all. I'm proud of it. Uh, yeah. and And my pride is absolutely personal and I don't feel the need to subject it to any kind of political I mean or it's historical you know but I don't feel the need to subject it to any kind of political test and if I was going to submit it to a moral test you sure as hell wouldn't be the person who I was allowing to judge it you know like if I was going to go through a test it ain't you who's testing me so um I like that about the piece that it's you know what I'm saying like that he's and I know that it's incoherent at points but I I appreciated that in it
1: no, I, I, I'm with you there. Like, I think the, uh, the inherent contradictions of it uh, that the, you could take paragraphs and literally, literally pair them against each other um, uh, made me feel like I, I believed him, right. This is coming from, like, he's not trying to sell me something. He's just trying to wrest something from the deepest, darkest parts of his soul uh, and, and try to communicate that to, uh, uh, to other people, try to connect with other people. Uh, Cause um, you know, th- those kind of mixed feelings, like inherent in all this right like we're talking kind of about the uh the you know the growing growing separate class or caste of of of, of war fighters right and you know on one hand i, I think that's uh, uh deeply unhelpful uh, uh and unhealthy for a republic right um on the other hand you know when i when i encounter you know uh you, you take things on a personal level uh and you know you talk to uh, you know former soldiers or, or people you knew in the service uh and you know those those years. You know those years that uh, maybe were just like, you know, are now just kind of riding fodder for me uh, and something I don't really think about very much. Is is it's like all they. You know, it's uh, it's all they have, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, it's it's really uh, it's uh, really hard for me to to say, hey man, you're really contributing to the American military civilian divide uh, 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 by by hanging by hanging. You know the uh, the, the threads of your life uh, onto that. So, you know, that, that, that's, I don't, I don't have a clear answer either. And, and, and uh, for that. There, there that's, is that's why Hasbro's essay is so powerful.
2: What, when, when I see, <laughs> like a critically lauded book that begins with two veterans wearing one shot, one kill t-shirts <laughs> working out to deal with their post-traumatic stress from, um, uh, committing war crimes. It's the opening chapter for the veteran section of a, of a novel. There was a part of me that wants to go, oh, just shut up and listen to a vet. <laughs> you know? What, uh, what book is this? Uh, it was, Are you uh, trying not to name it? I, I don't actually remember the name of the book. Okay. Uh, but it was like a finalist for an award recently. Uh, it's like, oh, it's a veteran character. <laughs> I read the
0: first Why page. would you have to talk to a veteran to know what a cliche is? Well, yeah. You're a writer. You should talk to another writer. I mean, that sounds horrible.
1: <laughs> or just, well, uh, to Phil's point, I mean, you got to put in the work, put in some research, read, read, read a book, for, read a book from a veteran. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, by I, the way, like if there
0: were two guys in a gym wearing one shot, one kill shirts, cause those guys are there. We all yeah. know those guys, yeah. but then at least, uh, you know, acknowledge that there's like some wise ass, uh, corporal in the corner who's like rolling his eyes and, and <laughs> spends his entire deployment mocking those guys.
2: You know? Right, right. Um, I, I will say that, by the way, the, uh, f- for me, perhaps the finest short story written about these kind of like contradictory feelings about authority and veteranness and, and talking about it, uh, it's, it's from an anthology called Fire and Forget. It's written by one Jacob Siegel. It's called Smile, There Are IEDs Everywhere. And that story is freaking superb. It Um, is,
1: it is. I I think the editors made a wise choice uh, uh, leading the anthology with that that story. Yeah, I mean,
2: the the author was to be honest, a pain in the ass to work with.
0: (laughs) I I appreciate that uh, high praise from Duget, as I respect Uh, greatly one of these days we'll have to tell the full story of um what was the line it, like i feel it in my groin the warmth in my <laughs> <wrist>. <laughs> oh yes uh, groins but uh, uh yeah am that- we'll tell the full story of how while i was in <laughs> afghanistan with intermittent we were going through final edits on the book and i had intermittent internet service and i was communicating my edits on the final galleys of the book through my brother. And we had a long fight about (laughs) whether I could keep a line about a a, a character feeling feelings in his groin or not. So another time for that though. Hey Matt, you got to come back uh, at some point when uh, the world um, re you know, constitutes itself in whatever form it takes in a few months, because we need to do a full, Empire City and Manifesto episode, but this was terrific.
2: Thank you for hey, coming hey, on. One, one, one thing I want to do before before we went, real quick, just whatever first comes to mind, favorite war films. Oh, oh, man. okay. Kelly's,
1: Kelly's Heroes. Ooh, I've never seen that. Which war was that? Uh, it's uh, uh, set during World War II, but it was made in the late 60s or early 70s. It's got a, a young, uh, a swarthy Donald Sutherland in it. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's subversive. It fits. I, I think it fits with the the theme of today's uh, today's conversation very nicely. Okay, I have two that are coming to my mind
0: right now. Does the Great Escape count? By the way, oh totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, the Great Escape's got to be on the list. But the other two that come to mind right now are uh, Paths of Glory, the Stanley Kubrick World War One mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. The, the you know there's a collection of scenes that I've never forgotten from certain movies and there's a scene from Paths of Glory which I saw as a freshman in college in a seminar course that I've never forgotten where the one character is talking about his fear of the gas and he's like I don't want to die I just don't want to choke on gas and it's like these two I can't remember. It's the lieutenant It just, I never forgot it. And he's just talking about, I you know, I just, I, I don't want to be covered in gas, you know, like it's not the death part. It's, and um, I don't know. I found that scene unforgettable. And then the other one is a big red one, Sam Fuller's uh, masterpiece with Lee Marvin. And uh, what's his face from star Wars. Um, and the guy from Revenge of the Nerds, it's, uh, but not Booger, the star of Revenge of the Nerds, Mark Hamill from Star Wars and Lee Marvin in the novel based on Samuel Fuller's own experiences with the first infantry division in World War II, which is one of the strangest war films ever made. And to me,
2: the best.
1: I've never seen that.
2: I have to check it out. Yeah, same, same. Phil, what about you? Um, so like I'm haunted by "Come and See," um, which is this uh, World War II film about like a partisan in Belarusia that is just brutal. Um, but uh, the one that came first to mind, maybe just I just saw it for the first time, is "Battle of Algiers." Um, is this amazing film, uh, yeah. and it sort of shows the sort of the insurgency and then the counterinsurgency There's this amazing uh, this sort of like Colonel who is a hero of the resistance comes in and the camera is very self-consciously like drooling on him as he's coming in to, you know, save the city. And then he starts in- implementing, you know, they use torture, um, brutal tactics. And there's this really tremendous sequence where, he gives a press conference, right, and then he's being pushed by the French press, and he starts berating them and and telling them, you know, you know, you're comparing us to to Nazis, and you know, we who were in the resistance, uh, and all of you supported the war, and now this is what it looks like, and this is how we have to win, and then it's followed by these like scenes of um, the torture as they're rooting out the resistance, and it is it's a. Tremendous film. There's a a remarkable sequence where these like three women dress up as like French Parisians um, with bombs in their handbags and then go into like, it's it's a, it's an
0: absolutely brilliant film. Um, The, uh, a bit too much to get into now, but the, the making of it and the kind of, you you can't say what the politics of the film are um, from watching it. It's that sort of, uh, perfect in its representation. You know, it's it gives every side its due in a way that's not like cloyingly even-handed, but is sort of right. yeah, it's a a, a truly uh, great film.
1: Cool.
2: Well, thank, well Matt, it's been awesome.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. Really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Keep up the great work, and uh, hopefully, on the other side of this, we can uh, we can get a beer again.
2: Yeah, come
0: back, man. We'll do Empire City and a manifesto once it's a beer-drinking world
1: again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds like a play, right. I guess. All right, stay safe. Hasta.
2: And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time.
0: When these men talk, I never know whether could regard him it, it as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.